Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, I'm Andrew Neil, and this is The Backstory, a series of in-depth interviews with people who have the power to shape events and to influence our understanding of them. In this episode, I'm joined by a former foreign secretary who stood against his brother for the Labour leadership and lost. Since leaving politics in 2013, David Miliband has been president and chief executive of the International Rescue Committee, a global aid charity that provides assistance to refugees and displaced people. I spoke to him in New York, where he now lives, and as you'll hear, he does still have one eye on politics back home. We also talk about the war in Ukraine, the ensuing refugee crisis, and the British government's policy of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda. This is the backstory from Tortoise. David Miliband, the invasion of Ukraine has produced a massive refugee crisis. Uh, the UN estimates almost 7 million have fled, mainly to European Union countries. How do you rate the EU's response? I rate the EU's response pretty highly. And the best explanation for that is that I should quibble with your use of the word crisis. Because it's undoubtedly the case that when 5 million people were chased out of Syria, it produced a crisis in Jordan and Lebanon. When a million people were chased out of Myanmar, it created a crisis in Bangladesh. But the remarkable thing about this extraordinary exodus of, as you say, 7 million people from Ukraine. Just to give uh, your listeners a, a bit of context, it took about a year, I think, for the first million people to leave Syria. And it took a few weeks for the first million people to leave Ukraine. Now, the interesting thing is that 7 million people have left. They've gone to 6 or 7 million people have left. They've gone to Europe. And it hasn't produced a crisis in Europe. And the reason, I think is uh, two or threefold. First, on the first weekend, the European Union didn't stick its head in the sand. It decided, alongside the military measures and the economic measures, it said, right, three, month, three years residency, three years work permits, three years education for kids, three years welfare benefits for uh, adults, for all Ukrainians, boom, temporary protected status. Secondly, Europe's the world's largest, richest single market. It had the resources to absorb them. And then thirdly, and interestingly, 
in, a, in an organic way, not controlled from Brussels, you found local government, the private sector, and individual Poles, Hungarians, Romanians coming together to try to absorb this extraordinary influx of people. So it's not a crisis, and by that standard, you've got to say the European Union so far, the European Union countries, and uh, aided and abetted by money and organisation and joint commitment across the EU, have handled it pretty well. But it's hit different countries disproportionately. Above all, Poland. Four million of the seven million have gone there, for geographic reasons, obviously, must be to the forefront. But it has propelled Poland, which in terms of the number of refugees it had, wasn't even in the top 100 countries in the world. It's now got the second most refugees of any country in, in, the, in the world by some uh, uh, calculations. Is, is the EU doing enough? Because it wasn't that long ago that Brussels was talking about penalizing Poland. Yeah, well, Poland was extremely leery, to put it mildly, of receiving any Syrian refugees, Afghan refugees, and we may come back to that because you may want, we may want to discuss the fact that these are white Christian refugees, they're not non-white Muslim refugees. Often thought going. to be temporary as well, well, but they'll go back. Well, a lot of family links, although that, that would be true between Syria and uh, Lebanon as well. But let, let's just go to your uh, point about Poland. First of all, quite a lot of people have gone back already, mm -hmm. and maybe even one and a half or two million have gone back, because the West is relatively safe. The West and center. We're, the International Rescue Committee is in this interesting place. We work across the arc of crisis, from the war zone to the refugee resettlement. And so we're in Ukraine, we're quite far east actually, I won't go into where, but we're quite far east, and we're in Poland and we're Hungary, etc. And we're counting people going backwards and forwards, some people going backwards, in other words, going back into uh, Ukraine. Now, the, the Polish, um, populations, you know, about 40 million, so it's pretty sizable, 10%, uh, and up to 10%. And I think that they have um, done really well, although our people in Poland are saying there is a great fear that when months become years, mm -hmm. the strains of having someone living in your front room really become real. And certainly you can listen to the mayor of Warsaw complaining vociferously that EU money might be going to Poland but it's not going to him. But I think it has been a pretty robust response. And there's one other important point about this. In 2015-16, the fact that Germany, and to a lesser extent Sweden, took such a disproportionate share of the Syrians, mainly, who arrived, caused resentment in Germany and Sweden. The fact that in this crisis, all 27 countries have signed up to the same rights for Ukrainian refugees has taken away that sort of sense of victimhood that somehow... And the, some are being asked to disproportionate. Disproportionate or unfairness has been uh, taken away. Now, there's actually... Germany's taken a lot, France less so. But as you say, it's the Eastern group. I'm most worried about countries like Moldova, who are well, not in the EU, obviously, the, the annual average income in Moldova is less than $4,000 a year, I think. It hasn't got the infrastructure to hold that many people. It's probably got 100,000 Ukrainians. But net-net is not a crisis, and that's remarkable, given that, in addition to the... Eight, we're speaking on the day that the UN has announced 89 million refugees and displaced people outside Ukraine, another 14 million, if you include the internally displaced, taking the, the total number of refugees and internally displaced to over 100 million. 
it's fair to describe most of the other refugee situations as crises, but it's but not. not this one. Correct. Unlike the EU, the, the UK requires Ukrainian refugees to obtain a visa. Is that really justified? No, I, I'm really sad, actually, that the EU has said, arrive and then we'll sort out your paperwork. The UK has said, we've got to sort out your paperwork and then we'll decide whether or not you're allowed to arrive. And I think that's been wrong and it's made the UK a laggard. The UK has reasonable claim not to be a laggard, to be actually at the forefront of defence help, military help, etc., mm. uh, for the Ukrainian effort. But it's a laggard on the refugee front. There's just one point, just in the spirit of conversation, that this, this podcast is. We're talking a lot about rich countries and their responsibilities. It's worth people knowing 85% of the world's refugees are in poor or lower middle-income countries, not in rich countries. There's no doubt it's been a deterrent, the, the British requirement. I mean, the Home Office, by the end of last month, the Home Office issued 115,000 visas, of which only 61,000 had been taken out, had actually been used to arrive in the country, 61,000 versus 4 million in Poland. Uh, it looks like we're the second lowest on a per capita basis in Europe. Uh, so if it was designed to be a deterrent, it has been a deterrent. Well, I'm, I think the government denied that it was designed to be a deterrent, and presumably the difference between the 61,000 and the 115,000 is people who are still in the system. I mean, yes. you, you'd expect that given the family links that you referred to, most people would want to stay... Closer. Close, and they'd also want to... They're also keeping their options open about going back. I mean, the, the tragic thing is that you've got Ukrainians with British links. They've got relatives or mm. um, connections to the UK who are not being allowed in. As I say, the government deny that they're trying to deter, and they've actually set a target of 100,000, which would still put us low per capita, and we're very low per capita for other refugee and asylum arrivals. Only 1,500 refugees were allowed in on the refugee resettlement route to the UK last year. That's less than three per parliamentary constituency. And so um, I think that the, the, the Ukrainian numbers, I'm afraid, are of a piece with our overall stance. Let me turn to another aspect of how Britain's been dealing with refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, the attempts to send them to Rwanda, everybody knows what that, that means. What's your view of that policy? Well, I'm afraid Britain is leading in the wrong way. It's leading a global race to the bottom on this because Britain isn't outsourcing the processing of asylum claims. It's outsourcing the housing in perpetuity for those who are successful of refugees. And that is something that... I think, is against Britain's national interest, but it's also against Britain's legal obligations. And I believe it sets a very bad example globally. I think Theresa May, I don't cite her as um, someone I agree with on many things, but I think that on this, she described the Rwanda proposal as illegal, unethical, impractical, and ineffective. And I'm afraid that's rather an appropriate litany Two big courts policy. in Britain have said it's not illegal. Say again? Two major courts in right. Britain have so said it's not illegal. Right, so I'm not going to argue... I, I, I mean, it may end up illegal, but at the moment we've not had a British court saying it is. No, that's right. And the European court has only issued an injunction to allow it to be uh, uh, tested. The European Court on Human Rights has, yes. uh, has, has done that. Yes. The, the argument... that the, the, the lowest point of this, I think, is the following, Andrew. That unaccompanied children are not going to be put on flights. So this policy is actually an incentive for every people smuggler 
to target the smuggling of unaccompanied children because it can say to them, if we get you into the UK, we're not gonna, you're not going to get sent to Rwanda. So I'm afraid... It's harder, I, harder to get paid for unaccompanied children, of course. Well... And these smugglers want big money. They, they do, but there's a lot of parents who are absolutely desperate. And if you look at where they're coming from, they're coming from places where they do have a well-founded fear of persecution, which is the test of refugee status. 70, 80, 90% of the test cases are being granted the right to stay in Britain under the international asylum. Well, the government would say they're coming from France. Well, they're coming from origin. Their country of origin is not France. I understand that. And of course, they're coming from France. I know. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention the 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 murder on the B word. Of course, until we left the European Union, if they had previously registered for asylum in France, they could have been sent back to France under the so-called Dublin Convention, and that has not been replaced, despite the fact that we're six years on from the Brexit referendum. The policy is popular, if we're to believe the polls, and is one of these issues that causes Labour some difficulty. How would you advise Labour to handle it? I think Labour should oppose it. I think it is opposing it, actually, to be fair. And they should say that this refugee challenge is manageable, not unmanageable. And the choice that countries like Britain face and other European countries face is either the flow of asylum seekers will be unmanaged, unregulated, illegal and dangerous, or it will be managed, coordinated, legal. You either manage this or, or you fail to manage it. It's not whether or not people seek to come. When you look at the, the scale of the problem and the likelihood it will get worse long before it gets better, isn't there a danger the whole system is just going to be overwhelmed and that there, in the Western world or in other rich countries around the world, there will be a reaction which will just be, we've had enough of this. We, we, the numbers are too great for us to deal with. You're absolutely right. The great danger is that the scale of the problem produces two reactions. One, it dehumanizes the people who we're serving. Because mm-hmm. just numbers. Just numbers. And so we lose the sense of tragedy. But secondly, people decide it's unmanageable, not manageable. Now, my argument has to be, first of all, most of these people are in poor countries, not in rich countries. So let's not kid ourselves in the richer parts of the world that we're being overwhelmed. Secondly, if we don't treat this problem, address this humanitarian need at source, then it will become our problem, either directly or indirectly. And so I think it's very short-sighted for the West to be in retreat from big global problems, which it has been for the last decade, really. And I think that's misjudged. Now, you, you might, we can argue about whether it's popular or unpopular. Um, certainly this country is in, is finding it very difficult, this country, America, that we're sitting in, is finding it very difficult to exercise global leadership at the moment because it's so preoccupied with its own internal problems. But when the West is absent, when there's a vacuum, really bad things happen. Let me move on. Um, As a former foreign secretary, let me return to Ukraine. This war could well drag on for many more months, if not years. Will the West stand by Ukraine if it does? Well, the fact that we both hesitate to answer that shows you it's it's a very real danger that it doesn't. My own instinct, it will. The West will stay. And I say that, first of all, because this tragedy has been humanized. 
that visceral sense of seeing people who yesterday were a teacher, a physical trainer, an accountant, and the fact that the next day, February the 23rd, they were a physical trainer, an accountant, a teacher, February 24th, they're a refugee, you can look at them and you say, well, it could be me. So they, it's, it's a humanized crisis. Secondly, I think the Biden administration deserves credit. There's been genuine transatlantic cooperation and unity on this, which I think is important, that where there wasn't on it's Afghanistan. It's helped to bring the Atlantic Alliance together. There wasn't on Afghanistan. Thirdly, Europe can feel the threat that if this campaign, if this invasion succeeds, then if you're in the Baltics, you're scared. And I don't know if you saw this, but there was... President Biden has, done, has been arguing a lot that this is a uh, conflict between democracy and autocracy, which I don't... You don't think, like that, do you? Well, I, I, do, I obviously prefer democracy to autocracy, but I don't think that's the right framing. I think the framing is this is about rule of law versus impunity. And the, remember, in the UN General Assembly, 50 or so countries refused to condemn the Russian invasion, even though it was a flagrant abuse of international law, representing 60% of the world's population. And that should give us pause that the framing of this as democracy versus autocracy doesn't doesn't win. But isn't the... it the same thing? I mean, rule, rule of law is 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 the the bedrock of democracy. Rule of law is what autocrats I would say that, um, just brush over. They make their own laws. I would say democracy is a very advanced form of accountability, mm. and we face a world at the moment that is riven by impunity, and. The pushback against impunity needs to come from democracy, but from other sources as well. But I just want to, don't want to lose my thread that um, President Biden has, has made this a democracy versus yes. autocracy argument, but he wrote a, an important, and I thought, good piece where he framed this much more as, to put it you know, who's next if this succeeds? And he said, we have a responsibility to stand up against this aggression, because if you don't stand up against the invasion of one state by another, then it's anarchy. And so... Your question was, will the West stick with it? And I think for those four reasons, it will stick with it. But now, it may be a very long haul with strains and stresses for people who've got Ukrainians living on their, in their front rooms in, in Warsaw. Um, but I think the costs of not sticking with it are going to be so high that, that I think we will stick with it. But already there are powerful voices. President Macron of France, Chancellor Schultz of Germany, indicating, in President Macron's case, more than indicating that President Zelensky will have to negotiate with President uh, Putin. Well, I think that's unfair on, on President Macron, actually, not least since he was in Kyiv today. He said he wants Ukraine to be victorious. Um, and President Zelensky has said, of course I'm going to have to negotiate with uh, Putin in the end. Of course I am. Zelensky has said that. Uh, but I'm not going to negotiate away my rights as a sovereign state with territorial integrity. And I think, I don't really like this, um, I think you're alluding to this. President Macron has got himself fixed on this thing about not, quote-unquote, humiliating Russia. And people say, oh, that means you want to give stuff away. And I think he's got a bit uh, hooked on it. And I, the reason I'm not, I, I don't like that formulation is that R President Putin is going to decide what, he, what truth he tells his own population or what untruth he tells his own population. And from my point of view, the issue is, is impunity allowed to hold sway in Ukraine? And I don't think it can be, because I think that the lessons of that will be disastrous. Germany thought the long-term way to, can I put this in quotes, control Russian aggression was through trade and being quite close to the Kremlin. That was part of Angela Merkel's policy. That policy is now 
pretty much in ruins. What does that mean for how we handle China? I think that the scales have fallen from, from the German eyes. I was in Berlin last month, and it was interesting to hear that the business community, as well as the political community, has really um, moved significantly. Now, the, the argument in respect of Germany, of Germany and Russia, was always, well, the Russians need us to pay for, our, for the gas, so they're on the hook to us as much as we're on the hook to them. And that was short-sighted. The failure to diversify, the failure to decarbonize costs us dear. The Chinese, the argument in respect of China is, is actually a rather different one because the Chinese are dependent on the global system much more than the global economic system than the Russians. If you want my view about the, if you like, handling China, engaging with China, um, I don't know if you've read Kevin Rudd's got this new book about how... I've read your review of it. Ah, well, there you go, even <laughs> better Prospect than the... Uh, magazine. Yeah, and, uh... so his, his argument is you need clear red lines between the US and China about what is... Um, what, what, can't be, what, what, what can't be transgressed. You need intense competition across a wide spectrum of activity, and you need to try and isolate global public goods like climate, like global health, like nuclear security for cooperation. And the third is not being done at the moment. I still support the pursuit of that third leg of the engagement with the Chinese, because I don't think... Well, I, I think they have a strategic interest in furthering the development of those global public goods. And I think we have a massive interest in that, on, on, as the COVID crisis shows, as the, uh, as the climate crisis shows. Now, whether that can be achieved, I don't know, because you know, China's now pursuing this dual circulation model where they're creating almost a model part of their economy, which is going to be run in, on an autarkic basis. But they are about... The, the reason the 2020s are different from the 1820s is the world is so much more interdependent, and China is absolutely at the heart of that interdependence. But we thought that interdependence would make the autocracies a bit more like us, or make them easier to deal with, or wouldn't do things like invade Ukraine. Now, Germany was at the center of this. It wasn't the only country that followed it, but it's Germany that's buying the biggest chunk of Russian gas, and China is Germany's biggest export market by far. It's made Germany the biggest exporter in the world, 140 billion euros a, a year. And in neither case can it be said to have worked. I mean, China has become more authoritarian, I would say under President Xi, now totalitarian, which is a different kind of a more extreme form of it. And I don't need to go through what's happened in, uh, with Russia and Ukraine or Crimea. Let, let, let's agree that the, the authoritarians are becoming more authoritarian. Wherever you started on the democracy autocracy spectrum, you've become less liberal over the last uh, yes. 15 years, really since 2005, six. Let's accept that. And let's also accept that you're, you're, you're right that you can find injudicious quotes from the 90s from President Clinton and others that said, as we bring China into the World Trade Organization, they're going to become more sure. liberal. So well, it wasn't wrong to think that. At well, the it time. turned out to be wrong. It turned out to be wrong, yeah. but at the time. Um, it, 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 but the question is, what's the right thing to do, whether or not that, you don't need to believe that supposition to believe that if we're going to solve global problems, we're gonna to have to do it with the Chinese, not separate from them. And, I don't want to get tripped up on the sort of terminology, but the whole thing of... Uh, the Cold War meant two competing systems in every aspect of life. If we end up in that situation 
with the Chinese, I'm very, very worried about what's going to happen in the 21st century. Because there are global problems where we are bound in with the Chinese. And that's why I like this point that Kevin Rudd makes about the red lines where we need to be clear to avoid a nuclear war, the areas of competition that's going to be intense, and, and, and no, no rose-tinted spectacles, but we must, must, must carve out areas of global cooperation. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves or our children in a desperate situation by the 2050s or the 2060s. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How do you think Keir Starmer's doing as Labour leader? Well, I think he's digging us out of the most enormous hole, and that's good. Um, that hole being Corbynism. Yeah, someone said long Corbyn. Um, look, we won three elections in 97, 2001 and 2005, and I always think it's important to remind people winning was not Labour's habit. In the 100 years before Tony Blair became leader, we'd actually only had real majority Labour governments for hundred for nine years. Mm. You know, 64... Mainly under Harold Wilson. Well, 45 to 51, to be fair. Exactly. Um, and then 66 to 70. But really, 64 to 66 was hardly a majority. 74 to 79 was hardly a majority. 74 to 76 under Wilson. So we broke the duck since uh, 2007, when Tony left. We've gone back to repeating the ways of losing elections rather than winning elections. And that found its nadir under Jeremy Corbyn, where we got, we were back to 1935, effectively. So I think Keir is digging us out of a deep hole. He's been focused internally. I think he's said this, actually. He's been focused internally over the last two years rather than externally. Now time to move external? Definitely. definitely. He's got to articulate a project and a set of policies that symbolise that project over the next period that allows him to be a attractive alternative to the Tories. Because I don't know what, what you think, but the old adage was governments don't lose elections. Governments, oppositions, oppositions, don't, oppositions, don't, oppositions don't win elections, governments, governments lose, lose them. them. I've, no, never, I've never bought that. No, I don't think that uh, it, it can sometimes be. At the moment, though, you could argue that the government's losing, but Labour's not winning. Well, it's I not. Mean, you can't rely on the government to lose your, the election. You certainly, I mean, Tory governments have a, uh, you've got to respect the Tory party. They end up, um, they're better at winning than losing. And so I think that um, Labour has to go out with a project and a set of policies in circumstances that are very, very challenging for the country. I don't mean for the party, for, but, the, for, the, for, the, for the country. The but is it, it's not yet clear what Mr Starmer's Labour Party stands for or what the priorities would be if it won power. Now, I perfectly understand that we're still at least a year, maybe two years away from an election. Uh, but by now as happened under Mr. Blair in 94, 95, 
we had an idea of the direction of travel and a broad sense of where it was going. Do, we don't have that with Mr. Starmer. Well, I think that that's why he's got to now focus on what his offer is to the British people. He's been cleaning house for two years. He's got better people around him in the shadow cabinet. He's cleaned up the party. But the project for the country, you can't win without a project for the country and policies to show what would be different. And that is exactly his task now. Now, to be fair to him, he, he's got a tougher job than Tony had because Tony was going with the grain of where Neil and John had taken yes, the party. Yes, he had come all the way from the 83 landslide defeat. Yes, although I did point out, I gave a lecture, about, I mean, God help me, it's 25 years since uh, the 97 election and 20, 28 years since I went to work for Tony in 94, so I'm, it makes me feel old. But I, do, I, I was surprised to, to, to be reminded of this. 92 wasn't a great result for Labour. Oh, you lost. Not just did we lose, we, we were two and a half million votes behind. So the yeah. I, people often say, oh, well, you know, you went from 87 to 92 and then mm. 92, one step, two step. Mm. 92 was a crushing defeat for a traditional social democratic oh, message. But it was also crushing because you expected to win. Yes, but it was all... Uh, up until the very last minute, indeed, up until the results came in. Yes, but we, it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't just a defeat, it was a very bad defeat. We were a long way behind. The Tory, John Major got more votes than any Tory... Right, but it narrowed the majority. Even Margaret Thatcher's landslide in 87 was not as big as the landslide in 83. And then in 92, it brought the Tory majority yeah. down to when you were at least in, you had expected to win. I know how big a blow it was that you didn't, but it did put you in hitting distance the next time Well, that's why I'm saying Keir's got a tougher job in, 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 in that way. And so he... Because he's had... not in hitting distance, really. Well, but to, no, he has to win 127 seats for a majority of one. Yeah. I mean you might be expecting too much of him. Well, I think he's set his ambitions high, so well, I'm the last person to say that I should, I'm, I'm the last. And also, politics is probably more volatile than it, than it was. But look, I, I always come back to, to this point. Britain has got really fundamental problems that need to be addressed. Whatever you say about it, the 10 years until 2007-8, till the financial crisis, we were second in the G7 Productivity League. Now we're bottom. In the 10 years to 2007-8, we had 2.7% a year average growth. In the 10 years, uh, over the last 10 years, we've had 1.7%. So we've got the decade of austerity. We've got Brexit, which is a fundamental uh, change to our situation. We've got COVID. Now we've got the global hiatus that, uh, of Ukraine. The country's got fundamental questions about what kind of society it, it's going to make itself. And that's where I think Labour has to move in. Because I don't see any answers coming from the government at the moment. But Labour has got a responsibility, I think, not just to itself, but to the country, to show that it's got the answers. And that's where I think politics is going to need to go. But if we're back in the politics of decline, uh, which we're in is, the, hopefully, we're in the politics of challenging decline. Right, but it's, it was the politics of decline that very much brought Margaret Thatcher to power in '79. If we're back in that situation, and the, the job of the office, opposition party is to show how we're going to reverse that decline, Labour's not there yet, is it? Well, that's why it's got to turn outwards. That's why I think, as I say, I think Keir Starmer said this himself that the situation now is different from the situation two years ago for the country, not just for the opposition. He came, he became leader before COVID. Uh, started just to take one uh, part of that. And 
you know, the, the, the results of the local elections were good, but not good enough to meet the standard that you're setting of sweeping... To get an overall majority. To, to, of sweeping back into power. You cannot count on Scotland and will not be able to count on Scotland. Well, you can't count... You should, I mean, no-one should count on anything in politics today. That's no, the, but Labour used to rack up big majorities with the help of... There were 40, 45 seats from Scotland. Yes, that's a good point. So, for all these reasons, you, you've got to set out a, a, a big stall because the country needs it and by your uh, calculation, logic, um, argument, the party needs it as well. And I, I think that that's, that is his task, I agree. But if, if we're, we're looking at a country in decline and the job of the opposition is to come up well, with we're, we're a country that, if it's not careful, is going to be declining. Uh, but the job of the opposition to say we're going to stop this and we know how to do it, uh, that it needs a suite of policy. Should part of that be Labour committing to renegotiate our relationship with the EU? More or less, yes. Um, I don't think we're going to. We should go back into the Brexit argument of rejoining the EU. I don't think that's real world at the moment. But I think that in economic sphere, in the refugee sphere, in the political and foreign policy sphere, the idea that we can't have functional relations with the European Union seems to me to be contrary to the British national interest. And so in the economic sphere, we should be saying, in my view, this is totally, this is only my view, we'll meet high standards of European single market regulation. It would be the cheapest confidence boost for British investors, British business, that you could... Imagine in the refugee sphere, we've talked about it. In the political sphere, we have a integrated defence review that doesn't mention the European Union. In fact, I think it mentions the Arctic more often than it mentions the European Union. That's not the real world. And so, now, I just want to... One thing before... We, this is not a gotcha podcast, but there are maybe people listening who, who, who would renegotiate. So we're not reopening the trade and um, the comprehensive agreement. We shouldn't rejoin the single market? No, I don't think that's the... I think that the... That's why I say match the single... Say that you'll match the single market's standards because once you get into rejoining the single market, you're, you're preempting all the debates about migration and the rest of it. But if you said for five or ten years we're going to match European high standards of regulation, you'd give the confidence for business without getting into all of that. But can, can I... There are two ways in which you can match these standards... One is you replicate them, which is still our situation at the moment. Yes. Uh, because we've but not we done pretend much it's not going to be. <laughs> well, but the other way is to have uh, the same high standards, but to do it differently, uh, which is equivalence. Well, let me just say this. No, but but the, the Europeans will not take equivalence. They want us to do exactly as they do. Well, either you match the standards or you don't. Here, here's the thing. Yeah, but there are different but, ways but, of doing hang it. Hang on a second. Here's the thing. The government have made an absolute fetish of the right to diverge from European standards. In fact, they haven't found a single European standard that they want to diverge from. Actually, let me correct myself. They, they think they may have found one in the insurance industry with this insolve thing. But actually, the European Union is going to update its regulations there. So the people who've made a fetish of divergence from European standards, in other words, regulatory arbitrage, they're going to find competitive advantage by divergence, they've not been able to find a single example of how to do it. And the truth about the modern world, Andrew, Europe is a regulatory superpower, America is a regulatory superpower, China is a regulatory superpower. Britain is not going to become a regulatory superpower in the modern world. And so I'm just giving you the example of 
we, we have dysfunctional economic relations with the European Union at the moment, with costs in Northern Ireland and elsewhere. Should a Labour government be promising that it will have functional economic relations with the European Union, functional political relations, functional social relations in areas like refugees, my argument is yes. But if the European Union says, as it does say, that, it, that you need to match our standard of regulation, and the only way we'll really recognise that is if your regulation is the same, should a Labour government agree to well, that? You've just told me that they are the same today, six years no, no, after I, the... Just let me... They, well, we, they, they are they, six years... Yeah, but they had to be the same all through the transition yeah, but, okay, period. But, but even this whole grace... Well, why does David Frost and then Boris Johnson, they keep on extending the grace periods, why? Because, which allow... They can't think of anything else. So why not just accept the single market regulations? That doesn't mean rejoining the single market. You could accept the single market regulations for five years or ten years. That's what I'm saying to you. Well, that's and the same my, as joining. No, it's not. You're, because you... The single market carries a whole range of other requirements. There are four freedoms built into the single market, not just matching of product standards. But if and, Europe and changed it. its regulation in some particular area, we should change in the same way. Yes, because we're, the idea of regulatory arbitrage has been shown to be absolute nonsense. There isn't a single area that these, these committed divergence mongers, they haven't been able to find a single area. Our economy is 5% smaller now than it would have been six years ago if we'd carried on. Business investment is 14% lower than for the um, matching uh, other economies that have not left the single market regulation. So we're costing ourselves. And every British business is saying, it's costing me more. Every British investment decision has this risk associated with it of, of divergence. And my argument would be, we have to find a way of having, as a country, of having functional relations with the European Union. Then, is Labour going to have to have a policy on migration? Yes. Is it going to have to have a policy on refugees? Yes. Is it going to have to have a policy on political cooperation? Yes. Does that mean rejoining the European Union? No. But if these are all the consequences, as you say, I mean, you do sound in a way you're re-litigating. I'm not re-litigating. No, that's, that's completely untrue. But it would surely follow if 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 what you say is right, uh, that the best thing to do would be to get back in in some shape or form and be a lot closer. No, we can't get back in. I mean, the irony, of course, is we wrote a lot of these regulations when we were members of the European Union. So they're actually as much British standards as anyone else's. Uh, the alignment would actually be a big economic boost for us, but it's not rejoining, it's not relitigating because we've done Brexit and we've left. Speaking of Europe, you've been enthusiastic about the German coalition of Social Democrats, Greens, Liberals. Is that a route you'd like to see Britain take? Politicians fall into two categories, in my view. You're either a security politician or an opportunity politician. So do ex-politicians, actually, who try and relitigate these things. And I'm basically of the, an ex-politician on the opportunity side, on the modernisation side, and that's where the German coalition agreement goes. So what aspect are you asking me? Should we have coalitions or should we have... Uh... No, the, the, the way forward to get a, 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 an anti-Tory majority may not be, is unlikely, I would even suggest, it be Labour on its own, that you may need to bring other forces together, the Greens, the Liberals, to get that. And that's why I asked, is Germany there for the template? Well, it's not a temp... Well, first of all, there was no pre-electoral coalition... No, I understand in, that. In, ...in Germany. So if you're saying to me, should there be pacts and no, things... No, that wasn't my oh, question. I see. What is they the question? came together after the yeah, election. Yeah, what's the, what's the question? I know then? that. That it may be more realistic uh, to 
campaign to get elected, but to be ready to do deals once you are well, elected. You, look, you campaign because you to won't win have an, an overall majority. No, you campaign to win as many seats as possible. That's what you do. And is it not more difficult in Britain? Because the German Greens are very grown up and sensible. They've been, they were in government uh, our, 20 years ago. Our, our Greens often still say... Well, I'm not like going to cast dispersions on them, but look, Labour should... And the German Liberals, just to finish it, are actually free marketeers. Our Liberals are not free marketeers. So it's a very interesting coalition in Germany that couldn't be replicated in Britain. I agree. It is very... Well, look, it's, it's, it's a very different... It's a consensus system. They've got different experience, different history, obviously. But, look, we, from my view, Labour should try and lead a coalition of ideas, not a coalition of uh, parties in pacts. And, you know, Labourism, mm -hmm. which is not the same as Labour, but Labourism, which is a kind of culture of kind of superiority of people, slightly inward-looking, slightly small-c conservative... Slightly tribal. That tribal, that's dangerous. What, what Labour did in 97, 2001 and 2005 was break out of the tribe, but actually ended up doing more for members of the tribe by breaking out of the tribe. And I learned a lot in that time watching politicians. I wasn't, it was, you know, in 97 I wasn't a politician. I was a backroom guy. But we broke out of the limits of tribe, and that's why I think Labour has to try and be a coalition of ideas that blazes a trail for modernising the country, extending opportunity. That's why I still think of myself as an opportunity ex-politician rather than a security ex-politician. Well, you just done it for the second time, describe yourself as an ex-politician. Uh, you don't sound like one. Well, I'm, an, I'm leading an NGO. I've just told you I'm running a $1.4 billion NGO. But you still talk like a politician on these matters. Well, I, I remember the, uh, the, when, I, in, in the first, um, when I made my maiden speech in Parliament, the, the one person um, speaking on the same day was Chris Bryant, who's still the Labour MP for the Ronda. And I said about him, he may have give, was he'd, been a, he'd been a preacher before, and he made a brilliant speech. And I, I was reading my speech in a slightly terrified way, and he was, he just, and I said, you can, the, the, he may have given up the cloth, but he hasn't lost the gift of the preacher. Mm -hmm. And so I am an ex-politician, but you say I sound like a politician. I don't know if that's meant as a compliment or not, but um, I'm running an NGO, and we're sitting out looking up uh, First Avenue. It's a long way from, uh, from South Shields, although I was in South Shields last month, and I'll be on holiday there in August. But the, which is my constituency... Um, so, you know, we make our own history, but not as we choose. And no. that's why so there's a different, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've had to put that behind me. So you could return to British politics. Oh, I don't know, Andrew, what I'm going to do. I mean, it's, it's hard, isn't it? You just don't know. And I've been very fortunate to be an ex-politician who's found a way of doing something that isn't pol party political, mm -hmm. but is about values and ideals and commitments and action. And... I remember saying when I uh, went for the interview at the International Rescue Committee eight, eight years ago, I said, look, if you're in government, the great thing is you can see the big picture and the danger is that you lose sight of the individuals. Mm -hmm. If you're running an NGO, the great thing is you see the individuals, but you, the danger is you lose sight of the big picture. And what I've tried and do, and maybe this speaks to your, it's not an allegation, your comment um, about what I sound like, is that I try and make sure that I focus on the individuals that we're helping, but don't lose sight of the big picture. And the big picture is what politics taught me. And it's that combination that I think is important. David Milliman, thank you. Thank you very much.
Tortoise members and subscribers to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts can hear my reflections on that conversation in a bonus episode called Inside the Interview, which comes out every Friday during this series. You can join our newsroom for £50 a year by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash Andrew and entering the code andrewneal 50 that's five zero and all one word. This episode was mixed by Studio Klong with original music by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer of The Backstory is Lewis Vickers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>